Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Um, I'm here this morning. I'm Angela Sigmund. I'm here to share my life verse. And uh, my life verse, I felt like was a little different than a lot of the others. Um, when, uh, in growing up, my father was an alcoholic. So our home was, was volatile and uh, it wasn't really your typical home. Well, I became a believer two months after I married this wonderful man. And the wonderful women and people in our church were saying, you need to love him. You need to love others. You need to love God. Love, love, love. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what it looked like. I didn't even know what to do with it. So I began to pray and pray. And God led me to what has become my life verse. And it's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And I read that. God showed me that, and I thought, oh, no, we're in big trouble. I have none of these qualities in my life. But then I started praying, and I still do that daily. Pray for God to develop these traits in my life so that I can love my husband, my children, my friends, unbelievers. And and then God showed me that he is the ultimate love and that I can look to him. My last last verse is... um, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I, myself, will not be disqualified. And that's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And the verse obviously caught my eye because it's about running, which, you know, I enjoy doing. But at my time in life, it seems like that, uh, you know, I'm pulling in so many different directions. I'm a father, a husband, a career, home. And it's so easy just to give a little bit here and there and just haphazardly work through but it's it he's comparing our christian life to the competition and dedication and training that the competitors in the games of his time which we know now as the olympics so if you think about the dedication the comp, the uh training and the life with well, the life dedication that olympic com- competitor has to have and compare that to what he's saying we should do in our Christian life, it's just a reminder to me that that's where my time should be and everything else will just fall in place. This is our uh, ninth Sunday uh, on this series that we uh, have called Life Verses. 
Uh, if you happen to be with us the first time, the intent is for you to hear uh, how important it is for the Bible to actually mean something in our lives. And that's why we ask our uh, staff and people on our leadership team. And then I also threw out early in the series, if someone uh, of you, uh, you know, lay people, that's one of those churchy words for just church members, uh, if, if you wanted to share something to let me know. Uh, and uh, Angela came up and said that they would like to. So today's our, our first Sunday kind of for our, our, our lay people's verses. So uh, let's, let's get into it and, and look at theirs. And I'm going to go with Angela's first. I started called Tim this week. I, I, I joked with him in the first service. And I said, because of the verses that Angela chose, uh, I almost started called Tim and said, Tim, there's no time for yours. <laughs> And, uh, and all, because we are going to spend the most of the time on Angel's verses and then kind of finish up uh, talking some uh, about Tim. So let's just go ahead and, and jump right in uh, to the text that she chose. And what I'm calling these verses that she's chosen out of 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is Christian affection, Christian affection, uh, because that is, and, and then make some kind of background comments about it before we uh, kind of break it down and, uh, and look at some, uh, some special aspects about love. But uh, it says, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, uh, but rejoices in in the truth. Uh, It always protects, uh, always trusts, always hopes, and and always perseveres. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is, is one of those passages that if we're not careful, we'll kind of get out of context a, a, a little bit. Um, a lot of times we'll think of 1 Corinthians 13 as the, the love chapter. Theologians even call it that. Uh, but what we will do with it is kind of lift it up out of context of what Paul is writing about, and we'll turn it into this kind of squishy, mushy love type thing and just talk about how uh, maybe a husband and a wife uh, ought to relate to each other. And while that application is there, that's not why Paul was writing these words. Paul was writing these words to a church that was having a lot of relational problems. Uh, he was writing uh, this letter to the to Corinthian believers who they were struggling about spiritual gifts because some people had spiritual gifts. Some didn't feel like they had that much. You had jealousy and envy uh, taking place. You had people who were selfishly wanting to practice their spiritual gifts to, to the demise uh, of someone else. Uh, you had people who at the Lord's Supper uh, were not... Uh, considering the fact that maybe some people couldn't afford uh, to bring the the food with them to that love feast uh, that they would have, and they were overlooking those believers. It was just a a lot of problems and issues they were having. Uh, They were taking each other to court. They were in the same church, and they were taking each other to court on lawsuits and things such as that. Uh, On top of that, you had sexual immorality taking place and, and other things that existed in the church. That's why Paul was writing these words. He was writing these words to address some of these problems that the church was having. They were being impatient with each other, just all kinds of, of issues that, that was taking place. Jonathan Swift, who uh, was the author of Gulliver's Travels, that's not a theological book at all, but he made this statement one time. He said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And isn't that a tragic statement? And regrettably, it's a statement that's true a lot of times because we can have enough religion to cause us to draw lines in the sand against people, to judge people really quickly, to look down on people, condemn people, and things like that. We've got uh, enough love to be kind of, or enough religion to be kind of 
legalistic, but we don't have enough to make us love like we ought to love. And that's the thing that we ought to be really concerned about. Paul writes about the church as though it's a body uh, fairly often in Scripture. And every time he's talking about the body, he spends a lot of time talking about Christian love and how love needs to be active in the body. See, one major evidence of Christian maturity is having a growing love for God and a growing love for other people. And if that is missing, then more than likely you're not on the pathway toward Christian maturity. So he's writing to the church at Corinth because of relational problems. And that's the main context, the main application. And it applies not just to the church of Corinth, it applies to us today. And that's why we need to learn to love each other as we should. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, there are three aspects of love that he talks about. And we're going to talk about the second aspect today. Uh, But the first one, just to kind of help you set everything in context, in verse 1 through 3, Paul writes about how how love can enrich. Uh, and the way he approaches that is this. He talks, about, he talks about five spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and giving. But then Paul points this out. Those spiritual gifts mean nothing if they're not practiced with love. In fact, Paul says this. It's a pretty extreme illustration. He said if you've got all these spiritual gifts you're trying to practice, and if you don't do it with love, as being the motive behind it. It's just like this noisy cymbal or someone banging a gong in your head. It doesn't bless anybody. It's just this intrusive noise that, that you're hearing because it's, that spiritual gift's not being practiced with love. Second main topic of love in, in this chapter is verse 4 and 7, and that's Angela's verses. We'll talk about that in detail in a moment. But the last section that he talks about love in verse 8 through 13, he talks about how love endures. He says, love never ends. And then he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is is love. But what we're going to spend our time talking about today is the one that Angela chose, verse 4 through 7, about how love edifies. We're going to talk about Christian affection. Basically, we're going to talk about what love is. We're going to talk about what love isn't, and we're going to talk about what love does. And that's kind of like your three main fill-in-the-blanks right there I've already given to you uh, if you wanted to jump ahead or something. Let's talk about what love is. Paul writes these words. He says, love is patient and love is kind. The, the word that he uses for love is that agape type of love. It's the God type of love, the type of love that God calls us to that's very hard many times for us to have. It's a love of affection. It's a love of benevolence. In other words, it's a kind of love that puts others first. It's a deep abiding self-sacrificing love that holds the interest of others first. To get the biggest picture of that possible, just think of Jesus dying on the cross. God so benevolently loved you, he so put your interest first that he sent his son to die on the cross. Jesus so loved you that he set aside his self-interest for your interest to die on the cross for you. That's a picture of what Christian love is really about. That's the kind of love that he calls us to here. And there's two main things that he tells us that this type of love is. First of all, he says love is patient. Love is patient. Before the first service, I was kidding with Angela, fussing at her backstage a little bit. I said, Angela, you have made me study about being patient 
all week. And I don't like the fact that you've made me study about being patient all week because I am prone to being impatient. Are you sometimes in your life? So that's what I've kind of had to deal with each week. Love is patient. Love, the, the word that he used in the Greek means to be long-spirited, forbearing, patient. The root word that it's built on means long-enduring or, or long-tempered. It's an attribute of God. Thank God for that, huh? Amen. Aren't you glad God was long-suffering? If God wasn't long-suffering, he would have wiped me out a long time ago. You too. So thank God that, that he is long-suffering. Patience is also a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, as believers, that's something that the Holy Spirit ought to be developing in our lives to where we have patience there. In the church at Corinth, the believers there were being really impatient with each other. It's like everybody wanted to practice their own spiritual gift, and they were arguing about who would get to do what when and being jealous over those types of things. But instead of being impatient and short-tempered, God wants us to be like he is. He wants us to be forbearing. He wants us to be long-enduring, long-tempered. You might just say it like this. God wants us to have long fuses on our dynamite instead of a short fuse. Because too often we've got short fuses. But patience means that basically we're, if we're looking out for the other person's well-being, since it says love, the God type of love is patient. That means that we're looking out for their interest. Paul tells us that we're supposed to be building each other up. The, the purpose, the motive behind the spiritual gifts that God gives us is not to exalt ourselves. The purpose is that we might build other people up. And he tells us that what, that's what we're called to do. But you know what we tend to do? We tend to have short fuses to build them up. We want to blow them up, don't we? I'll get you. You've, you know, you've done this to me. You've made me mad. I'll just blow you up. The, um, look at some of the verses that Paul, that Paul writes here where he's telling us the purpose is, is to build people up. We know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge, in other words, just focusing upon knowledge, puffs up, but love builds up. He says that each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, the, the gifts that God gives us, it, it's not to exalt ourselves, it's not to be selfish, it's for the common good. It's for us to bless others and, and be used in ministry to others. He said in chapter 14, on, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That ought to have been the goal of the speaking that was taking place. Later on, chapter 14, he said this, so that the church may be built up. That's what our spiritual gifts are about. Verse 12 of chapter 14, he says, so with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. What he's saying is, don't be longing for spiritual gifts. You can say, look at me, look at the spiritual gifts I have. He said, you ought to be longing for it because you need to build the church up, build up other believers. He writes in verse 17, he says, For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. We need to be concerned about building others up. And then this last verse. He said, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. And then he said, Let all things 
be done for building up. He also tells us in, in Corinthians that God's not the author of confusion. Now, to set it in a context to help you maybe understand, what would our worship service be like if every time we get together, everyone here comes in the door and they say, the spiritual gifts that I have, I'm going to display those during this worship service. If I can preach, I'm going to preach. If I can teach, I'm going to teach. If I can sing, I'm going to sing. If I've got a testimony, I'm going to give a testimony. And you don't mind standing up and interrupting everybody else to be sure that you get your spiritual gift across. You see the confusion that would take place? Everybody trying to do what they wanted to do at the same time. That doesn't build anyone up. That's why Paul is reminding them all things need to be done for building others up. He not only tells us to be patient, he tells us to be kind. This is the only occurrence of this particular Greek word. It's not the only time the word kind is in the Bible, but this is the only time this Greek word is used in all the New Testament. And the word means to show oneself useful, to act benevolently. The root word means to be employed, to be useful, to furnish what is needed. In other words, you and I as Christians, the, the love that we have needs to be the kind of love that that shows itself useful in the life of someone else. The the kind of love that we practice, we ought to have a a kindness about us that leads us to act benevolently for another person's interest, not our own. The kind of Christian love that we ought to have is the kind of love that, that causes us to be employed in kindness, trying to give kind acts toward others useful in their lives. We're, we're furnishing what's needed in the life of someone else. Paul also wrote this in Ephesians. He said, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, be given to one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. We've talked about that verse several times in the past. In other words, you and I need to be kind, loving, forgiving toward each other. We need to forgive other people to the degree that God's forgiven us for Christ's sake. That means I've got a lot of forgiving to do, and so do you. Amen? If we stop and think about everything that we've ever done that God forgave us for, and he says to the same degree, we're supposed to be practicing that type of forgiveness, that type of, of kindness toward other people. So he tells us that love ought to be patient and love ought to be kind. There's two primary things he says that love is. And then Paul kind of goes on a rant telling us what love isn't. What love is not. Doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. He tells us to start with basically love isn't jealous. It, it, it does not envy. And I think in your notes, if you're following along in the updates, I think maybe we've got a, a a little bit of a blip there. We left something out uh, by accident, but if you need to write off to the side uh, or something. But love, love isn't jealous. It does not, does not envy. All of these negatives that Paul's about to talk about, when he says does not in the Greek, it means absolutely not. It's not like possibly or maybe. He, he's saying love absolutely does not do these things. Love absolutely does not envy. It, it's not jealous. You, you're not filled with heat and zeal or jealousy like you'd have against an enemy. You see, envy is a really, really dangerous sin. And here's why. 
You remember a guy back in Genesis, early on in the Bible, by the name of Cain? You remember that? And Cain had this brother by the name of Abel, and God, by the way, accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's because it represented the work of his hands. And he envied in his heart. Cain had envy in his heart. What did it lead him to do? He murdered his brother, bashed his head in with a rock. But it's because he had envy in his heart. See, that's why envy or jealousy is a very dangerous thing to play with because it might lead to anger and and bitterness and all kinds of relational problems. It might even lead to something like, like murder. Envy can be about possessions, what someone owns. Envy might be about wealth or status or even spiritual gifts. They were being envious in the church of Corinth against each other over their spiritual gifts. The equivalent of that would be, I don't like John Lewis because he gets to sing on stage. Or I don't like Daryl Tripp because he gets to work with the children upstairs and I don't get to do those things. Guess what? Let us know. We'll let you do it. Promise you we will. But that's that's the kind of attitude that it's talking about. To, To be jealous over what someone else gets to do or the spiritual gifts that someone else has. And in Corinth, those with the lesser gifts were being envious of those with the greater gifts. So a way to make that really practical is this. We need to ask ourselves the question, how do I act? What do I think? How do I respond when someone else gets blessed? Or someone else gets the limelight? Or or someone else gets to do something that, that I don't get to do? Even in ministry, how how do I respond to that? And if you're responding in the wrong way with jealousy, it means you've got this envy that's taking place. And real Christian love doesn't need to have that kind of envy attached to it. Instead of being envious and jealous over what somebody else does, if we've got real Christian love active in, in our lives, what we do is work together with that other person. They do what God has gifted them to do. I do what God has gifted me to do. You do what God has gifted you to do. And and it all fits together and it works together as part of the body of Christ. He also tells us love isn't prideful. He said it doesn't boast. It's, It's not proud. Absolutely not. Being like a bragger, someone that's all the time boasting or vaunting themselves. Is not proud. Once again, absolutely not in the Greek. Is not inflated or made proud or haughty or puffed up. The, the root word means to swell up or to, to grow by germination or a seed growing or sprouting and producing. You know, some people would get so filled with pride it just keeps growing in their lives like, like a produce field. Started with a little seed and now they're so puffed up in their, in their field with, with pride. Some people envy those that have the greater gifts, but some people are prideful because they think they have the greater gifts. And they're doing it almost for the wrong reason. You say, here's the problem with doing ministry out of pride. You change the focus from where it ought to be. If you're prideful about your spiritual gifts, you turn the focus upon yourself and you'll say, look at me, look at what I can do, look at my spiritual gifts. 
And that's not what the spiritual gift was for. The spiritual gift is to bless someone else, to minister to someone else. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about blessing someone else, and it's about glorifying God. And if we get the wrong idea about our spiritual gifts and we get really prideful about those things and we miss the whole purpose of what the spiritual gift is, we start elevating self. We allow our spiritual gifts to be a tool to promote ourselves instead of being a a tool to promote the kingdom of God, and that's what it was there for. By the way, not to deflate you too much, but spiritual gifts come from God. It's not something you developed anyway in your own life, so why be jealous about it? Why be prideful about it? Because you didn't generate it. God gave it to you. And he gave it to you to use to bless others and to glorify himself. Love isn't rude. As he's on this rant about the things that love isn't. It, next slide. Love, love isn't rude. It, it absolutely is not unbecoming in its actions. Or behaving in an unseeming way. The root word means it's shapeless or inelegant or actions that are improper is what it's talking about. I, I, I think what he's kind of saying is this, that the, the, the love that we have, the way that we operate, the way that we live our lives as Christians, there, there ought to be some, there ought to be a charm about our lives that, that's much more powerful and compelling than the charms of the world. There ought to be something about our attitude and the way other people view us. There ought to be an elegance about our lives. It says that rudeness is like inelegance. You and I as believers, there ought to be this elegance about our lives. We ought to bear in mind that we are living, representing Jesus who died for us on the cross. We're living our lives representing the God of all the universe. And if we'll bear that in mind, that ought to reel in our rudeness. When we understand that who we're representing, we need to, we need to live like him and, and, and be like him instead of being discourteous to people and, and crude to people and, and mean-spirited to people. He also tells us love isn't selfish. It is not self-seeking. The phrase means absolutely not seeking or even used to worship or, or to plot. See, people that are self-seeking, they always want to have their own way. People that are self-seeking, people that are selfish, their their life is all about them. It's all about me. It's all about who I am. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I think ought to take place. It's all about my preferences. And they're selfish and they're self-centered and and they're wanting the best for them. And, And if you remember what love is, the agape type of love, the God type of love, a benevolent type of love, a love that takes to heart the interest of others. If we're being self-seeking and selfish, that's the exact opposite of what God wants us to be. The exact opposite of the type of love that he, that he calls us to have. And he says, love isn't impatient. I hate having to bring up patience again this morning. Do you? Love isn't impatient. It is not Easily angered. Excuse me, guys. I'm going to lay down here on the altar for a minute, pray, and when I get feeling better about myself, I'll get back up. You feel like you need to do that? I'm sorry, but I'm just being honest with you. I can be easily angered sometimes. Can you? 
But Paul's telling us if we want to be more like Christ, if we want to be displaying Christian love, we have to learn not to be easily angered, not absolutely not to be like sharp alongside someone or or exasperated by the actions of someone else or easily provoked or stirred up. We don't need to be too touchy or too sensitive by the slights of others. Instead of being quick to show irritation, as the flesh often does, Christian love puts up with other people. Remember what we said patience was? Forbearing with others, long-suffering with others, long-tempered with others, having a long fuse instead of a short fuse. It says love isn't easily angered, isn't easily impatient. And then he says love isn't unforgiving. It's basically what he says. It keeps no record of wrongs. That phrase, keep no record of wrongs, means absolutely does not take an inventory. Does not have an estimate of other people based upon what they've done in the past. The root word means something said, thoughts, reasoning, motives, a computation, like you're working it out in your mind. In other words, when someone offends you, when someone hurts you, or someone maybe just falls in their spiritual life, don't go get your ledger book and open your ledger book up and get your pen out and start writing it down. And then the next time they fall, you pull it out and you write it down. And you write it down. Of course, in this day and time, we've got smartphones and uh, tablets, and we just put a database out on them, don't we? We do a spreadsheet on someone. This is how many times they've hurt me. And, and then the next time they hurt you, you write it down and you write it down and you write it down. And what we tend to do is in the future, we'll whip that out as ammunition to use against them. Especially after we get up to here with what they're doing. But Paul tells us real Christian love doesn't do that. We, we don't keep a ledger against people. We don't keep a, a tally or, or a database on what someone else has done. Instead, we need to offer forgiveness toward them. Deal with this question for a minute. How would you like it if God still held everything against you that you've ever done that was wrong? You need to hear that one again? I don't even want to say it again. How would you like that? If God kept a running record of everything that you have done that is wrong and is still against you, even though you received Christ as your Savior, how would you like that if God failed to forgive you and kept a running record against your life? Don't think I like it too much, would you? I messed up a bunch. <laughs> You'd have a pretty long ledger on me. And that's why we don't need to do it against others. Because the Bible literally tells us that, that God doesn't do that to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, that's what God was about in Jesus, reconciling. Not keeping a log, not keeping a database. Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So you and I ought to be about reconciliation ourselves. Yes, reconciling people to God through Jesus, but we ought to also be about reconciliation in our own lives with others. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Notice what it says. Not counting their trespasses against them. God doesn't keep a ledger on you anymore. 
because you're in Christ. Who are we to keep a laser against other people? Because he says Christian love does not do that. And then lastly, he says this, love isn't unrighteous or unjust. He says love doesn't delight in evil. We're not tickled, we're not happy when someone falls. We're not ready to hold evil thoughts against people. We're not thinking it's okay when someone falls into sin and we're just laughing about it and we're happy about it. He says we absolutely are not cheerful. We absolutely are not calmly well off about it or well wishing concerning the things that are worthless or depraved or injurious or injustice or wrongfulness of character, life actions or injustice or being unjust. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't delight in evil. Instead, and this leads us to what love does, instead of love delighting in evil, what Christian love does is this. But rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Instead of us rejoicing in evil or being happy when someone falls or holding evil thoughts in our minds against them, it says love, Christian love, rejoices with the truth. Some translations say rejoices in the truth, but this word with is really the better translation. It literally means that we are in a relationship, a union with the truth. The word means to sympathize in gladness, to congratulate, to rejoice in or with, in union or together with, by association, companionship, process, or resemblance with the truth. Who does the Bible tell us, uh, t- the Bible tell us is the truth? I'm the way, the what? Truth and the life. So Jesus himself is the very truth. And you and I that know him, that have trusted in him, we're in a relationship. We're in a companionship. We're connected with Jesus. So the type of love we ought to have should rejoice with him, should rejoice with the things that he rejoices about, should rejoice in the things that are good, the things that are righteous, the things that are holy. Instead of the things that are wicked and the things that are against the will of God, we need to rejoice in companionship with Jesus himself. Paul says love also does this. It not only rejoices with the truth. He says love always protects. The word always means all the time. No matter you know, how you want to look at that in the Greek, that phrase means all the time. And it means literally to put a roof over or to cover with silence. To hide by covering and to endure patiently. Instead of seeking to harm someone, we're to seek to protect them. Instead of being impatient with them and ill at them and hating them and unforgiving them, what we need to do is put a roof over their head. Instead of us trying to rain a storm upon their lives because of the way they've done or the way they've fallen, or the way they're living their lives. Instead of us judging them and condemning them. He's not talking about saying it's okay to sin. But there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to tell people, hey, you've messed up. Instead of us raining judgment down upon someone, he, he said we need to build a roof over their head. He said we need to cover them with silence. That's the opposite of gossip. 
When you find out someone has fallen in sin, instead of you calling up on the phone and getting the grapevine going and letting everyone know in the community that this person has some sin in their life, he said, instead of you doing that, you need to cover them with silence instead of gossiping. And that doesn't mean, like I said a moment ago, it doesn't mean that you condone what they do. It means you go to that person and you confront them in a loving way. You try and help them. You let them know what that activity in their life can cost them. But by doing so, you doing it one-on-one with them, you're covering them with silence instead of spreading it around. That's what Christian love does. It, It always protects instead of seeking to inflict harm on someone else. He said it always trusts, all the time has faith in or upon or respect to. In other words, we're, we're willing to think the best of others. Doesn't mean you naively open yourself up to anything that someone might say in your way, but it means we guard ourselves against always thinking the worst. We try to hope, we try and trust to begin with. And, and we always hope, he says, love always hopes. All the time we expect or we anticipate with pleasure or confidence something good's going to come out of it. In other words, instead of us being so quick to write someone off when they fall, we need to remind ourselves that they've not arrived yet, that we've not arrived yet, that God is still working on both of us, and we need to hold out hope and trust. We need to hold out hope that God is going to make all things work together for good, just like he says in Romans eight twenty eight. You're one slide behind me, getting ready to be two slides behind me. Move, uh, perseveres. Love always perseveres. All the time, stays under, remains under, undergoes, bear trials, have fortitude, persevere, abide, endure, be patient. Christian love gives us the ability to hold on. Christian love gives us the ability to put up with people. Or to put up with circumstances. To be willing to stay under it and understand that that God is trying to bring good out of it. Christian love that perseveres holds on to their marriages. Christian love that perseveres tries to repair relationships with others when there's hurt that's taking place. Christian love that perseveres continues to trust in God despite setbacks and failures and discouragement and depression is holding on to God and having faith in Him no matter what. What love is, what love isn't, and what love does. There's a lot, a ton of important stuff you and I need to practice in our lives. Now, before I give you the highlight of Tim's, as I told him earlier, Angela's took up the time. I want to give you a quote from R.C. Sproul. He's a theologian. And he wrote this. He said, God requires mercy and love from the heart, not sacrifice, not the exercising of gifts. We must remember that Satan is a master at mimicking the gifts of the Spirit, but he cannot mimic the heart. That's a huge statement. Do you understand what he's saying? Satan can put someone up there that looks like they're being really spiritual with practicing gifts. And they don't even know him. And they can go through the motions. And they can say the right words. 
He goes on and he says he can set up a puppet teacher who's endowed with great knowledge, but he cannot give that person love for God and love for others. Because Satan is not into that. That's not what he's going to be about. This is solely a Christian grace and can only come by the Spirit of Christ. Simply put, we need to be concerned about in all of our activity, in all of our ministry, in all of our practice of spiritual gifts, we need to be concerned we're doing it out of love. Because Satan can counterfeit the rest of it. Tim, his pastor of Scripture, Angels dealt with Christian affection. His deals with Christian dedication or Christian determination. I'm going to read the verses and I'm going to hit the highlights of it, give you about like four or five big things, and, and then we're going to, going to close. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games does or goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not become, depending on your translation, some translations say a castaway. This translation says I will not become disqualified for the prize. He's using an illustration about athletics. Some of you guys, I'm going to give you some ammunition today. You'll probably get in trouble when you use it. I'll probably get in trouble for saying it. But when you're watching sports and your wife's upset because you're watching sports, you can say, hey, the Apostle Paul is a sports fan. He was. He used an illustration a whole lot about athletics, about running races. Here he uses an illustration about athletics. In that day and time, literally, the Olympics, what's evolved into our Olympics today, was already taking place in Greece. In fact, in the city of Corinth, where these believers are, where this Corinthian church is that he's writing this letter to, they had their own games that they would practice every two years. And in order to gain entry into the games... That athlete had to go into strict, rigorous training. There are things he had to quit doing, the things he had to start doing to get himself ready for the race. Some of you guys run races. That's why Tim chose this, I think. He, I've seen him out you know, running races. I'm riding by in a car. He's out running. I can never run long distance. I can just run short distance. So I'm jealous, and I hate Tim. You can tell him that when you see him because he can run long distance. So Lynn will go run long distance. Some of you run long distance. You have to change a few things. You get ready for that, don't you? Yeah, start start saying no to the donuts. <laughs> yeah, start saying yes to some exercise and training, and getting ready. That's that's what Paul's talking about. He's using this as an illustration about how these athletes would put in this great effort because it was really, really important to them that they had the chance to compete and that they had the chance to win the prize. Basically, what Paul is telling us is this. You and I as believers ought to put at least as much energy into exercising our faith as an athlete does trying to get ready to run a race. He's using this race as a, as a picture 
of the Christian life. He's not talking about running a race to win your salvation or to maintain your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about running a race in order to gain rewards, in order to be involved in ministry, in order to to impact other people, to have successful Christian life and successful ministry. So with that in mind, I want you to notice, notice five big things real quick. We need to run in a way to get the reward. You need to run in a way that you actually have the chance to earn some rewards. You need to live your Christian life in such a way that you can seize hold of that prize. And one way you do that is to keep your focus on the goal. Keep your focus on where you're running. Look what Hebrews tells us. We read this for another reason a couple of weeks ago. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who does it say to look to? Who does it say to look to? Look up. Who does it say to look to? Jesus. We're to keep our attention focused upon him as we run. That's the goal. That's where we're to be focused. If we're going to run in a way as a win the prize, we need to stay focused on where we're running. If you don't stay focused on the goal line, you're going to get running all over the place, as you'll see here in a minute, that he addresses. So we need to run in a way that we can actually gain reward. Second thing I want you to see is this. Winning the reward requires strict training. So I said a moment ago, you have to say no to some stuff, and you have to start doing some stuff to get ready for that competition. That's what an athlete has to do. Athletes that are going to practice and try out for the Olympics today go through rigorous training. They have to reject a lot of things. They, they have to add a lot of things into their lives in order to compete the way that they should. If you and I as Christians, there are some strict disciplines that we need to be about. We need to be about prayer. We need to be about studying our Bible. We need to be about church attendance. We need to be about serving Christ. We need to be involved in those things if, if we're going to, to win the award. We have to, we have to train diligently. Now, I want you to listen to this. Please get this part of it if you missed the next part that I'm going to say. I want to remind you that he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about a reward. The only time that you can earn heavenly rewards is between the time you said yes to Jesus, you trusted him as Savior, and the time you die. You're not going to be earning any rewards in heaven. That's where you get them. That's why Paul is encouraging us to run in such a way as we can can gain the award. Everyone competes in the games, goes into strict training. You need to be about doing some things right now because your only opportunity to do it is between the time you say yes to Jesus and the time that you die or the time the rapture happens, if you're still alive at the time Jesus comes. That's the only time frame that you've got to work in. Kind of let you know we need to be about it now. Third thing is this. We need to evaluate what race we're running in, what we're running for. He says they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. A crown that will not last is something that's going to corrupt, it's something that will pass away, it's going to shrivel, it's going to spoil, it's going to ruin, but that crown that will last forever is undecaying, it's uncorruptible, it's a crown that will last forever. I'm afraid our problem is this today in our culture, even within the church, 
We are spending so much time running the world's race or running our own race that we don't have time to run God's race. And we're running after all these rewards that we think are so significant that the world says is really important. And one day all of that will pass away and be gone. And the only reward that will last is what you did for Jesus. That's why we need to ask ourselves, what race are we running? Number four, we need to live intentional Christian lives with purpose. Paul writes these words in verse 26, Therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. You've got a race taking place. And people are concentrated on the goal, and they're running straight to the goal. And you've got this other guy over here that's running over this way, and then he's running over this way, and then he's running over that way, and he's running over here. Who do you think is going to make it to the goal line first? The one that was focused, not the one that's over here. If we're going to earn Christian reward, we need to stay focused on what our goal is. We need to stay focused upon Jesus. But I'm afraid a lot of us just aimlessly run here and run there. Paul said, I'm not like someone that's just boxing in the air. All I'm doing is just flaying around in the air. You're not winning any battles. You're not punching Satan any. All you're doing is just flaying in the air with no purpose, no intention in your life. And he encourages us that we need to live Christian lives of purpose. The last thing I want you to see is, is this. Paul gives us a warning that disqualification is possible. He said, no, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be either cast away, depending on your translation, or disqualified for the price. Interesting phrase for I I beat my body. Literally means to hit yourself under the eye. (laughs) You've seen the advertisement. I can't remember who's running. It might be Carrier or some air conditioning company or something like that. You know, trying to talk about instead of you fighting yourself over what the temperature is. You seen those advertisements where it shows someone fighting themselves and, and and all in the room, and instead they say just you know you need to get this new equipment. They'll take care of it. It's kind of stupid to fight yourself in those advertisements. But Paul said there's a purpose to kind of punching yourself in the eye. There's a purpose to keeping yourself under submission. There's a purpose to subduing your your passions. Because if you don't, after you've preached to others, after you've taught others, after you've served God in some way, you might come disqualified, not of your salvation, disqualified from the prize, from the reward. The word that he uses in the Greek was used in the games of that day. Just like in our Olympics, when they recognized the people who won the gold medal, the silver medal, the bronze medal, they would recognize and they would call out the names of the winners, but they would also call out the names of people that were disqualified. That happens still yet in sports today. NASCAR, if someone does something to their motor they shouldn't have done, and they find out about it, they're disqualified. The Tour de France, you might win all these awards and everything like that, and then they find out you've been doping, guess what happens? You're disqualified. You lose that reward. 
They would also announce the names of the ones that were disqualified. The ones that were disqualified did not lose their citizenship. They were still citizens of Greece. They didn't lose their citizenship. All they lost was that reward. So he's not talking about losing salvation. He's talking about losing the reward and maybe even losing the opportunity to serve Christ in some ways because you become a castaway and you're like put on a shelf. I remember reading that years ago after I had been called in the ministry. And that passage has always haunted me because I've always thought, God, I don't want to ever do something that would cause me one day to be put on a shelf or to be a castaway or be disqualified so I can no longer do what you've called me to do. If that can happen, I can mess up in such a way you wouldn't ever want to hear me. God forbid that that would happen. God forbid it would happen in your life. He gives us a warning that that we need to be aware that if we're not careful, we're not loving the right way that we talked about earlier. If we're not running the race the right way, that we can become unusable for God in ministry. What we've talked about today is Christian affection and Christian determination. Mostly talked about Christian affection. They both have the same goal, though. See, Christian affection has a goal of loving others, reaching others, glorifying God. That's the same goal that Christian determination has. To love others, to reach others, to minister to others, to glorify God. We need to ask ourselves what kind of love we have. We need to ask ourselves, do I understand what love is? Do I understand what love isn't? Do I understand what love does? And am I practicing that kind of love toward others? We need to ask ourselves, what kind of race are we running? Are you running the world's race? Are you running the race that you want to run for yourself? Or are you running God's race? Because running His race is where the reward is. Are you a Christian in training? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Guys, athletes, those athletes at that level go through rigorous training. I'm not talking about do you pop your Bible open once every six months. I'm not talking about do you bring your Bible with you to church and you pop it open, you kind of read along, and you take it home and you put it back on the shelf and you don't do it anymore. I'm not talking about do you come to church and you bow your head and you listen or you pray while someone else is praying and that's all you get done. That's not rigorous training. An athlete systematically is doing it over and over and over and over again so he can run the race, so he can fight the fight, so he can be the best he can be in the competition. And that's what you and I need to do as Christians. We need to be reading the Bible, praying, being serious about church, and about serving Him. We don't need just to be living our lives from the sideline, watching others, or from the grandstand. We need to be running the race ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us to love like you love. 
that you give us a greater capacity to be patient with others. You give us a greater capacity to, to be kind to others. To avoid all those actions and attitudes that do not represent your love. God, help us to be more like you. You loved us so much you sent your son to die on a cross. Help us to evaluate the way we're living our lives. Help us to to look and see if we're just running aimlessly or if we're just boxing the air or if we're running the race that you want us to run to win the award that you want us to have for your honor and for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Today the message, because these letters were written, this letter of Corinthians was written to the church. So in other words, if, if you're here today and you're someone that's never trusted Christ as your Savior, I, I wasn't necessarily preaching to you. I was preaching to believers today because we need to love the right way. We need to be running the race the right way. But that being the case, right before we have this thing we call an invitation. I want to ask you if you know Christ as your Savior. Because we were talking about the God kind of love, and the God kind of love was this. He put you first by sending His Son to die on the cross. Just like He calls us to put others first, to minister to them. God put you first, looked out for your interest most. By putting his son on a cross for you. And if you've never trusted in him, why not now? And as a believer, if you need to come say, God, I, God, I need help with this love thing. I need help with this patience thing. Hey, I do too. Maybe you need to come up here and kneel and pray about it. If you realize you're running the wrong race, ask God to help you get focused and run the race that he wants you to run. Please stand. God speaks to your heart. We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.